Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. Brooke Lampley is spending a year in neutral territory as she makes her transition from Christie's Impressionist and Modern Department to her new role next year at Sotheby's. So we're going to take advantage of it this week and speak to her and David Norman about the New York Impressionist and Modern sales that took place in May. Uh, David Norman, thank you for being here. My pleasure. Brooke Lampley, I appreciate your coming in too. Thank you so much. I wanted to start with both of your just overall impressions about not just the sales, but the market, the Impressionist and Modern market as a whole. You know, overall, I saw the Impressionist and Modern market as very strong, but very challenged in terms of supply. And I think the other thing that was really quite interesting is that all the real active bidding battles occurred over, you know, much more not esoteric, intellectual, modernist things, you know, uh, uh, Max Ernst sculptures and de Chiricos and Man Ray photos and Picabias and, uh, you know, of course, major works like the Brancusi and Cubist Brocks. The, the sparks and the excitement, you know, were not necessarily Picasso and Monet and Miro and sort of the more familiar, you can see me making quotes, bankable names. Is that because, as you mentioned, the supply that the people who own, you know, the big attention-getting works in the category uh, just aren't interested in selling? There's no, no incentive to sell? Well, I think in the early field, our field of Impressionist and Modern, people are just less transactional. In the post-war and contemporary you know, the prices spike so rapidly uh, that people will come in and come out and, you know, uh, monetize and do like-kind exchanges and swaps for different works. So there's a much more likely turnover. You know, you'll see uh, Grosjean or any number of artists, you know, that can be bought and then resold within five years. And that just doesn't happen as much in the classic, you know, early 20th century field. I think there's a lot more confidence in the contemporary market in um, an appreciating marketplace and change that propels turnover. What was interesting in this sales cycle for Impressionist and Modern, I think, is the Picasso that was sold at Christie's um, that did sell for a huge price. Um, because it is something that isn't completely fresh to the market. Um, it sold in an intense bidding war at Christie's London um, less than a decade ago. Um, and bringing it back to the market again so soon um, with quite a hefty estimate relative to where it had been estimated before was a reasonable challenge. Um, and yet it still sold well against its estimate range. I think the low end of the estimate was 35 and it sold for 40 hammer. Um, that's a really impressive price considering that not long ago it was estimated at 10 to $15 million roughly. I mean, that was being sold, I think with a guarantee, but being sold for, as you just said, in a, a very high price in a very business-like way. You know, the, the assumption that there was already a deal in place, you might come in and displace that deal, but you were starting at a very high number. That kind of applies to most of the, you know, A-plus works in, in private hands in this category. 
Well, and in this season, I think at both houses, you saw um, a tremendous amount of financing in the market. I was really surprised at how many third-party guarantees were announced at the start of Sotheby's sale. Um, and there were a number of third-party guarantees already in place in both auctions before before the start of the sale, um, more than we had seen in recent years. But where people are actually soliciting that as um, an instrument of security, um, it also serves to encourage the market. So it's kind of ironic because it's a backstop, but for buyers it's perceived in many regards as a positive. People are willing to put uh, that security against the assets, so it, therefore it has, yeah. No, and I think that's that's an important uh, part in all of this, and that, and why the all forms of guarantees have become uh, more pervasive because I think they're recognized as uh, a, a form of uh, validation that allows everyone else to get a se sense that, yes, there's someone who wants to transact here. Now you can decide whether you, you want to uh, transact at that level or higher. But it does kind of make the sale itself uh, less exciting just because, you know, you're already playing at a very high level. You know, I mean, the in so many instances, the competition already happened before the catalog went to press. And you really felt that in the Christie's contemporary sale. It was probably the best performing sale, lowest buy-in rate, highest total, but there were just so few sparks. And I do think the audience, when you talk to other professionals and some long-term private collectors, they are getting a little tired or confused or resistant to the idea of these sales being so engineered you know, and the outcome's already being set. So, but I think it's a necessity for the auction houses to build the sale this way. The, that is an interesting problem for um, the sort of broader group of people you're trying to attract. If you, if the whole point of an auction is it's open to all comers and that all you have to do is be able to pay for it at the end, it kind of defeats the purpose to be told that there was an auction before the auction and the only way to get in on that is to know the right people and be offered or brought in on these works before they're announced to the public. And so it, I guess it is one of those things where it's been too successful at this point uh, and has gotten uh, to to the, that situation where people feel like they've missed out and they're just sitting on the sidelines. Well, I wonder if it's too successful because I think the auction houses really want um, the theater of bidding. So the contemporary sale at Christie's is a great example. Um, while it was a highly successful sale by all statistical accounts, um, it wasn't perceived that way by the press or by a lot of spectators because of the way that the transactions actually occurred. So um, it doesn't feel like success. It feels like um, the sellers have become increasingly resistant to um, what is the essence of the model, a pricing strategy that is attractive. Um, and it feels like they're trying to get the most, the best of two different worlds yep. in one setting. And so um, I really perceive it as a pricing problem because the auction houses are pushed to price things as aggressively as can possibly be supported. Um, so I think they would still say, yes, you know, everyone's welcome if you'd like to bid 
above this level, but this is the most that we could possibly offer it at, and so we're doing the best for our consigner by ensuring that it meets this minimum, this very high minimum. And yet the top lot in this category had a healthy estimate to begin with and sold far above that estimate, which shows, I suppose, that it just takes two or three people and any number may be possible uh, in in uh, the given situation. Uh, I'm referring to the Brancusi that sold for, what's the number? 51 Hammer, 57, all in, I think. And I would turn that question to David. Um, I'd be interested in where he would have priced that work um, and what you think of that estimate. Well, when... Everyone saw it at 20 to 30. That felt conservative. You know, there'd only been, you know, two Brancusi sculptures that were worth or made above five million in the last 30 years. You know, I remember back when the, we had the Winston Malbin sale and we had this uh, beautiful piece. And, you know, my own thinking was when the Medigliani stone head makes 72 million, when Rodin marbles make 20 million, Giacometti bust of Diego twice made 50 million, one in the Brody sale at Christie's, one uh, almost the identical price at Sotheby's. For the best Brancusi, you know, one could have gotten their hands on, it, it seems certain that, I mean, certain, nothing certain, but it, it felt pretty comfortable you know, telling people you thought it'd at least go to 40 million hammer. And then it's always the fun of watching, you know, somebody jump in, you know, who you didn't expect to see at the sale, like Tobias coming in with the um, the last bid. One thing I think is interesting, I think I mentioned it maybe in prior sales, is, you know, sometimes the really high prices are made where the last two bidders put like 40% onto the final price. And others, this was happening in London, where just when you think you lost the third and the fourth bidder, all of a sudden they pop back in again. So that was really fun watching the Brancusi where, you know, Nancy White was out for a while or Maria Los was out for a while or Eleanor, and then all of a sudden, boom, they're, they're back in again. So there was so much support for some of these very high prices. As a bidding strategy, is that someone feeling like this is there's this is happening so fast I, I'm better off just waiting and seeing where it goes and then deciding where I want to get back back in? Or is it someone saying enough and then seeing other people, it's the validation you were talking about, saying, well, gee, if two other people think it's worth fifty million dollars, I don't want to be left out on this. My first response to that is I think when somebody's coming in, you know, and they're bidding at 30, um, they don't necessarily get riled up and jump back in at 50. I think they were fairly close to predicting or being advised that it would at least end up in that neighborhood. So then, then I believe it's a good strategy to sort of sit back, you know, not fuel a frenzy, you know, and then maybe psych out, you know, the others by jumping back in. It's a real, you know, head game you're playing with your fellow bidders. I think we saw it a couple of times during the course of the week that that um, attempt to, to get a bid in just with the hammer. Uh, and and sort of, I presume the part of that strategy is to frustrate the person who thinks they've got it, and then at the last second they're uh, disappointed and they just f figure, forget it. I'm not going to bid anymore. And I, I don't get the sense that it worked. 
That's why bidding wars are so mesmerizing, because they're driven entirely by the individual psychology of the bidders. I mean, I think we've seen so many different kinds. I've definitely bid with people who, if somebody snuck in a bid underneath the hammer and they felt that the auctioneer, if they felt betrayed by the auctioneer, yep. that they would take that personally and not bid further. I've definitely had that experience, but it's so variable. And it must be tough in that split second to try and talk them off the ledge and convince them to give it another shot? Well, I'm not much of a psychiatrist, but I think they're bringing a lot of past experience to the moment. Um, it's not just about that one moment. So it's difficult. Um, I mean, I bid with someone once who I think we were bidding in $100,000 increments, and it was 8-3 against us. The next bid would have been 8-4, and they asked to bid 8.75. And I had to repeat that and make sure that I got that correctly. Um, and we did. And that sufficiently psyched out the underbidder, the other person. And then they told me later that was my last bid. That was it. I think it's also so interesting how much control sometimes the bidders who are not in the auction room on the phone with us feel in the process. Because as many years, decades as I was doing it, it's nerve-wracking when you're on the phone with somebody. You know they want to bid, and they just keep saying, hold on, hold on. And then you're on the other line. I'm sure Brooks felt this and go, I, the auctioneer's gavel is up. The auctioneer really is going to hit it now. The, the auctioneer, who is someone you work with, who you know wants you to get this done, and you are now in this conflicted point where you're trying to serve the client and the auction house at the same time and somehow close the gap between the two. And this is a whole different topic, but there were... It was interesting. There was a moment at Christie's where the gavel came down very fast and somebody literally yelled out, you know, you missed my bid. Uh, and then there were two instances at Sotheby's where Helena Newman reopened bidding. You know, it's a very human, emotional moment. And for the auctioneer, there's a split second to decide which way you're going to go, because you can't spend long hesitating about that. Just circumstantial That's contrast. That's entirely at the discretion of the auctioneer? Because yes. I noticed Rumbler said no to, to one of them. He just basically waved it off, which which struck me as kind of odd, because usually it's the other way around. I mean, you're, you uh, the auction house is a fiduciary for the seller. It's their responsibility to get, you know, the maximum maximum amount of bids in, I would think the bias would be towards reopening it uh, and, and taking that bid. Yeah, true. Although you have to have somebody on staff identify that a hand was up or the phone bidder was, you know, in motion. Oh, as I, as I check on the auctioneer being... Yeah. It has to be defensible. They have to feel that it's defensible. You mentioned earlier the price of the uh, Modigliani stone uh, caryatids, I can't even pronounce that correctly, um, which were around $70 million. And I know at least one person who made the comment that the um, Brancusi's price was actually a measure of the top end coming down, that these are comparable works, and if a Modigliani head is 70 and the Brancusi bronze uh, head is 50, that means the Modigliani would be 50 today. You know, I was having a conversation about the Basquiat. You're not always getting a work that sits within the same hierarchy within the artist's oeuvre. So somebody was asking me, 
oh, Basquiat's $110 million, and now what does that mean? Is he worth more than a, than a Shilo? Or started throwing out some other artist names. And you are right, the sort of apples to apples, um, you know, uh, analogy. I mean, it was Brancusi who literally was the example for Medigliani to do his work, but, you know, that probably was the, God, that was the ultimate of the Medigliani sculptures, yeah. and it was a uniquely carved piece. And that was a magnificent Brancusi, but I think one would safely say there are other Brancusis in private collections, even here in Manhattan, uh, that could be considered easily of greater value than 50 million. So the record price isn't necessarily the true you know, ceiling. I would add to that, too, that there's more uniformity on um, of opinion on what the seminal or most iconic Modigliani sculpture is than Brancusi's. I mean, Brancusi has um, a variety of styles in his work that are celebrated. Um, and while that helps propel and support the market, it also divides the market a little bit because, you know, this may be somebody's bird in space, but somebody else loves bird in space. But with for Modigliani, there is no other competitor. I actually want to talk more about sculpture since so much uh, that was interesting were in the in the sculptures. But you mentioned the Picasso earlier, and in the same sale there was the nineteen uh, twenty the Cleveland uh, Clinic one, which had for for going back to sort of cubism and and all had a very strong price. Is that just the general market, or is it that the sort of cubism, you know, with the Lauder uh, uh, gift to the, the Met and everything else, sort of cu cubism has come back. The, the Brock sold very well uh, in that same sale, that, that, that there's a sort of premium being paid for these cubist works. For me, it's even more anomalous. Um, I think it's specific to the fact that this is a direct pendant picture to the more traditional neoclassical portrait of Olga in the Picasso Museum. Um, it is stupendous that such a clear um, pairing exists. It's exactly the same size, and it perfectly illustrates how he was working in two idioms at this period in time. Um, otherwise, I think that this period is um, somewhat more commercially challenging. Um, so I think it's a great price, um, but I think a lot of it can be attributed to that relationship um, and the affinity between those two works. That and um, I think overall the Cleveland Clinic works attracted great attention and um, sold very well. And so I think that also speaks to Seidel Miller's great taste um, and the renown of her collection and um, the importance of provenance, which you see again and again in the sales, particularly for Impressionist and modern works that are sold with um, celebrated pedigrees and great names, um, sell particularly well. You know, I'd be a little bit on a different, you know, line of thought on that. I just think this was a good-looking painting, you know? And I know Brooke isn't, isn't saying otherwise, but I also feel so much of the time, we as the professionals, we have so much context, we know so many things. We sometimes attribute, equate potentially a final price with the value of the work as we see it historically. I think this one was just an attractive, you know, beautifully rendered uh, picture. It was certainly very rare. I think compared to, now you're talking about cubism. One, I don't think there's enough cubist 
pictures that can be on the market to actually predict a movement. I think just when they come up, particularly the Brock and the analytic, they're just so rare. Mm -hmm. There was, interestingly, though, I think it was at Sotheby's, a, a Picasso, was it oval? Yeah, uh, which painting? didn't do. Yeah. Didn't uh, even sell it. Three, five had bought in. And and the, the Brock had, the night before had done so well, and you thought, oh, maybe there's just an updraft that anything from that period, it yeah. being so rare and all, and I don't know, maybe there was some other issue with, with the painting, but that certainly argues against yeah. it I mean, being it about this. The strength of the picture. And and this did so well. It really was the result of just two bidders. Adrian Meyer started, and he was probably, you know, exercising the order bid or the guarantee. And then it was just down to Connor Jordan and I guess what was Abigail Asher in the room, as it was reported. If this was a work of the 30s or 40s, you know, even a great musketeer would actually probably have been a lot more. You know, if you certainly if you had a Doramar this size, it would be. You know, 70, 80, 90, if you had a really amazing, you know, musketeer post-1960 work, you'd probably definitely be over 30. So it was a wonderful price, um, but um, it's always tough to extrapolate, especially when you don't have enough supply to... Look, it was, it was a great to see something like that get a starring role. You know, it, it, it really is the kind of picture that deserved uh, uh, the attention it got for that period and to be singled out rather than being treated as sort of, you know, uh, a, an early lot or something that, that wasn't going to get that much uh, a focus. Before we get to the sculpture, do you want to just talk about the Malevich um, uh, for a minute? Because I, I thought that that was a very interesting... I, I know it's sort of, it's a great year and those are very rare pictures uh and it was very slow to get off the ground uh originally but it it seemed like that was the kind of thing that up until the sale looked like it was gonna get lost in the shuffle uh and then it made you know a great price i suppose if it were um a stronger image it would probably be two to three times that that price. Uh, but it certainly seemed uh, one of these things that sort of, sort of uh, got slipped in and did well. And I gather it's a, an estate work, so there was no financial underpinnings to, to it and all. Well, I can tell you, it just damn surprised me. You know, I, uh, I just didn't think it was going to do that kind of price, and it was just so incredibly slow. Uh, you're right, if it was you know, maybe a little more uh, dynamic in color and the relationships between the geometric forms, then it would most likely be the same price as a uh, Mondrian that size. So you could be talking easily about a $50 million work. But uh, yeah, just lingered and lingered just around the low estimate. And then it sort of started creeping up. It was Gregoire Bio and Lisa Dennison. And then all of a sudden, one of Sotheby's uh, Russian-speaking bidders popped in just at around 17 million. And, you know, those three people were just intense for it. It seemed to me almost like the kind of thing that I could see someone, um, either a museum or someone buying to eventually donate to a museum because, uh, you know, the date and everything else about the picture is so sig uh, significant. Uh, and I convinced myself that Lisa Dennison must be, uh, you know, uh, bidding for a museum. Uh, and I'm reliably told that that uh, it was a private client. Yeah. But it, it, it seemed that sort of thing. And, and I guess uh, uh, while we're on that one, the, um, the De Chirico is a similar sort of picture. If it, if it had, uh, 
the you know the model or a train in it, it probably would have been three times the uh, the price. But it was a great image and a great picture for with the right sort of dates, and it did uh, certainly quite well. They were different for me in the respect of I thought of the Dakirico as a real sort of connoisseur's work. Um, not that the Malevich isn't, um, but I was curious about um, the Lisa Dennison, Gregoire, um, and Alina bidding formation, whether that was um, signifying a contemporary kind of minimalist taste for the picture, um, or if I was over-reading, uh, I got to be a spectator, so I really don't know. Uh, I know I know someone who's entirely just conjecture uh, uh, does think it's a contemporary that Gregoire's bitter uh, was a very well-known collector, but m- more of a contemporary collector and sort of that fit uh, the kind of taste uh, and all, which, again, it's sort of this interesting where you look for value. Uh, and and even at these pr- prices, there's still a, you know, a, a, a pretty good value to get that kind of uh, uh, work that can sort of be put into a broader collection that doesn't really have anything from the early 20th century. In. So uh, now we can finally get to the, the uh, sculpture. Uh, and I wanted to ask you about, first of all, this is the Clutcher works from the Finns. And there was um, the Moore at uh, Christie's. And I think that set us off with like two Henry Moores, very different Henry Moores, selling for about the same uh, uh, price. Uh, and all. Uh, is that just, I mean, the, the market for Moore has been very strong for some time uh, now. Is it that sort of, you know, uh, the that the one at Christie's just looked like, the one in four parts looked like a great piece, and the Finns seem to have a pretty good provenance. For me, it was um, happenstance that they sort of converged at a similar value. Um, they're I would have framed them quite differently in my approach to pricing them um, because there's a steady tradition of these large um, four-piece, more abstracted works of which a number of them, they have come to market not necessarily the exact same form, um, but fairly consistently over the past few years, um, and they have a fairly consistent market. Um, And... It was interesting that Loic bought this one. Um, it's not uncommon for um, contemporary collectors to enjoy um, particularly these quite abstracted, um, large reclining forms on in outdoor settings. Um, that's a pretty common thing we see in um, collections. So it's quite different, to my view, from what is um, an earlier and much more figurative um, exploration. Um, This work, this was more challenging because you see a lot of the smaller format um, seated figures. And um, so, of course, there's a steady recognition for them, um, but you don't see a large format like this come to the market um, very often. And um, its scale and proportion, um, it's it's much more unusual and embracing um, something that is much more descriptive um, as a monumental outdoor piece, um, I think, is a bit more radical 
Um, it's a little bit more adventurous. So um, I was really interested to see the enthusiastic bidding on that piece. Um, I thought that was a lot less predictable. And you could see that also in the estimate ranges. That's why one was priced more conservatively than the other. You mean because they had the um, the global guarantee for the fins, and well, that gave them the chance to be be more attractive with that um, seated figure? I mean that the seated figure was priced at four to six million, whereas the large four piece reclining figure was priced at six to eight because um, there's been more precedent in the market for the large piece large four-piece reclining figures or the large reclining figures. So um, it was probably, I think, more comfortable to estimate that a little bit more ambitiously, um, whereas the 4 to $6 million estimate for seated woman was conservative, um, but necessarily so, I think, because there was a lot less precedent to look at in this market. And you know, I like Brooke's point that uh you know, the large four-piece is abstract and it's very contemporary. Uh, and the bidders, Loic, and there was another you know, representative, uh, private advisor, Thomas Seydu, bidding on it. And it was a different type of uh, group of bidders in the Sotheby's room in the you know, 1950-seated woman is a more traditional, sort of like that is for kind of the hardcore, enthusiastic Henry Moore collectors and those you know, maybe in the market a longer period of time. Whereas I took the large piece to be, just as Brooke was saying, for the types of collectors who are building outdoor sculpture assemblages on these, you know, very large properties. So they're slightly different constituencies. Well, actually, that makes a great deal more sense. And the this is an opportunity for the seated figure that may not come again. And the um, the larger piece is really about this, you know, merging we're seeing of the various um, collecting categories where people there are certain pivots that people can go either way on those works. You might say the same thing about that. Um, the large ARP bronze, which was also very conservatively estimated, I'm assuming, too, for the same reason that there's just not a lot of those um, that get sold uh, to, to give you any sort of track record or anything for the um, prospective buyers to uh, look at and measure to get against. But in person, it was a, an impressive uh, piece, and given the other kind of interest that's been around the ARP market, it wasn't really surprising um, I mean, for ARP, it's a record price, but as a just price of a large piece of sculpture by a well-known artist, it, it seemed still conservative even at, I can't remember what it did make. One and a half to uh, two and a half. And it was conservative. I'm sure if Sotheby's had to go to two to three million or even two and a half to three and a half million, they would have. Um, I don't know what the nature of the competition of this was. I don't. Do you know, Brooke, if it was between both? Houses? It was. It was definitely very competitive. So I'm surprised that the estimates didn't escalate a bit because all the estimates seemed really low. I mean, Richier two years ago, you know, made almost two and a half million dollars. So winning it at one and a half million. I mean, certainly Sotheby's put down a uh, guarantee. And then so interesting, they gave the guarantee away. And there was no question that this was going to be a really successful group. And then they handed it off. So, you know, they're managing their risks. Maybe they're doing a little quid pro quo, you know, for good, 
bankable partners and you share a little of the wealth? It's not clear that the uh, IBs are necessarily at the low estimate. Those IBs could have been, uh, I mean, this is rare that it happens, but they could could have been like your uh, collector who jumped a a, a bid, people just wanting to get in a number that was more than a, you know, acceptable number for for Sotheby's to feel. Because it it was across, I mean, they literally called out the successive numbers. Uh, I don't know if it was every one of the Finn uh, uh, works, but most of them. It was. So even potentially someone could have, just put in a bid across the board for the whole collection uh, as some sort of a... a well, and I, I suspect I had the sense it was, as opposed to apportioning one piece to one person and another, which is another way of managing, you know, uh, if you can't... But it, it felt like this might have been just one partner on the whole group. So we were talking about provenance, and that may bring up the most interesting provenance, which is the Max Ernst sculpture that was not only owned by Robert Motherwell, but uh, effectively cast by Motherwell or caused to be cast uh, uh, by Motherwell. And and I thought Sotheby's did a great job of presenting, you know, they had a photograph of Motherwell and Ernst playing chess in front of this sculpt, bronze sculpture that, you know, involves a chessboard and chess pieces uh, and all. And it, it certainly worked. I mean, it ended up selling for almost $16 million. Or, uh, the estimate was like four, right? Four to six, which yeah. seemed... Very conservative, uh, although the last price for one of those, I remember I had in a sale in like 2002 and it was, I'm not even sure it was $3 million. So words like that are kind of guesses and you don't go wrong if you have the chance to stay a little bit on the uh, conservative side. I mean, I think my own thought was it should have been about a at least a $10 million piece, but I certainly didn't myself anticipate it would go that high. Well, you knew they felt good about it because it was the first multi-million dollar piece to appear in the lot order. Um, But it was, it represented a fantastic synergy of provenance with the quality of the artwork and um, two collecting categories. You had everything in the mix that really drives great competition. Two collecting categories, meaning you could get sort of a Motherwell collector or someone uh, who collects abstract expression work? I was fairly confident that there was a mix of contemporary and impressionist and modern engagement. Not that they even merit being divided that harshly anymore. Um, But you could tell there was a real spectrum of interest in this lot based on the phone bidders um, from Jeremiah, Simon Stock, um, you know, impressionist and modern specialists to then Ollie Barker, Gregoire, Amy, Adam Chin. Uh, you got the sense that there was a gamut of people interested. I also wanted to ask a little bit about um, the Chagall that did so well, about the same level, about $14.5 million. And I'm for those of us not familiar with it, there's, you know, there's so much Chagall. And, and I, I shouldn't say that. You can see from the painting that this is, I mean, a head and shoulders above a lot of what you see of the later works uh, and all. But is there a specific story behind this work? And where does that fit within those sort of prices of Chagall? Is this a, a, a high Chagall price or is it just of this kind of quality work? It's It's generally a high price. I mean, you'll get the 
biggest prices from the teens and the earlier 20s. Chagall was so prolific. The vast majority of you know, what you see in the auction markets, 1960 and later, to have a 1950s Chagall, you know, is already something, you know, we would be happy about getting something a little earlier. We had a large Chagall in London. I say we, I have to keep <laughs> removing myself from the, the plural when I talk about Sotheby's. Uh, that was a, around the 40s, it was a figure whose body sort of melded with a large cello, and that made 14 million. So it made sort of the, uh, you know, it, it, it was a certain price precedent um, for this. I think what is interesting about Chagall's market for me um, is that it's much more motivated by subject matter um, than most other artists because his production, he was prolific over a long period of time. Um, he's generally very well recognized and celebrated worldwide. Um, everybody knows Marc Chagall. Um, and his style, though it varies, um, doesn't vary as dramatically as an artist like Picasso, for example. Um, so you're getting similar iterations and really reiterations of subjects over the course of time. Um, and so people are looking for um, subject matter that they're most moved by. So for me, um, what was compelling most of all about this work is that it's very romantic. Um, and that's something that you get a flavor of to some degree in a lot of his work, um, but it's it's not so common actually that the entire canvas is suffused with that mood. Um, it can be one of the tropes um, within a palette that's otherwise perhaps very exuberant or um, darker, and there are other things going on, but here it's really the predominant theme, and I think that's um, very alluring to people. And I, we had this, uh when I was at Sotheby's for sale back in 98, and that's when I met Sidel, and she was the only bidder. We had it estimated at three to four million with the buyer's premium. It made uh, 3.3 million. The Japanese bidders, you know, had exited the market in the late 80s, uh, so there's sort of a hiatus, but I think you'll agree today, along with Picasso and Monet, Asian buyers are really attracted uh, to Chagall, including mainland buyers. And as I was writing down names, Brooke will know more about her colleagues, I, I saw several what looked like Asian representatives bidding on the Chagall. Oh, there that's was Sin Lee and also Tanbo. And um, I actually thought it was an interesting phenomenon throughout Christie's sale, more than at Sotheby's, was there was a lot of Asian yes. underbidding. Um, for whatever reason, I think that's not perhaps accurately enough reflected um, because they weren't successful buyers in um, a great number of cases, but there was a ton of Asian un underbidding. That's so interesting because uh, I literally was having a conversation in the past few days wondering whether the absence of Asian buyers was indicative of the capital controls and that were, you know, as they're beginning to take effect for more and more months, will we see less and less um, participation? But what you're saying is it's more just they had a number and they decided to stick with it. That or, um, I, as always, a function of taste or success on other lots. I mean, we did see um, 
perhaps and likely an Asian buyer for the Picasso Doramar that we discussed earlier, 12A, that yep. sold for $40 million hammer, sold to Rebecca Way. Yep. Um, so, and then there were some smaller lots like um, a Monet lot 16A that sold to Jin Ching. But there was a lot more participation in bidding from the you know, Asian reps in the Christie sale. I'm sort of looking through my catalog in so many instances, but also, you know, sort of the more classical works like the Picasso, like the large Renoir, like several of the Monet's, even the Cezanne landscape uh, I saw, you know, an Asian bid on. Except for the the Stingle, the very large Stingle self-portrait, which seemed to go to Rebecca Way's client, which maybe means it's a, a Chinese buyer, there didn't seem to be at all um, Asian uh, participation in the contemporary sales. The Miyazawa buying the Basquiat, obviously a very large exception uh, uh, to that. Uh, is that, are you suggesting that's more, uh, you know, a taste for, and I think we've probably seen this over the last few years, the Asians, uh, uh, buyers are particularly interested in modern works, uh, probably more than they are in contemporary works. In my experience, they're interested in both um, and perhaps not the full spectrum of either. So that impression can be radically shifted and determined by what the offering of any sale season is. I also assume from your perspective, it's a bit frustrating to have people who have one or two artists in mind and you can't get them off of, you know, no, we don't have a Monet, but we've got this, you know, wonderful picture and can't get them interested. Well, I have to be careful to not be too limiting about it. It's actually, I feel it's my failure. Like we... Um, can take and we continue to endeavor to, I think everyone take a greater responsibility for education because that possibility absolutely exists all the time. I mean, Christie's has had success selling Max Ernst paintings in mainland China. Um, so it is expanding and changing all the time. And there will always be, um, there will be unexpected and surprising moments every season. Yeah, and someone made the comment about um, Art Basel in Hong Kong this March, that the, this was sort of the first year they felt like all this preparatory educational work that has been done finally came into full fruition. And if you talk to most dealers, everyone now gets it. You don't uh, screw around and try and pass stuff off. Uh, 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 if, if it ever worked, it certainly doesn't work now. Highly, the, the people who are buying are very smart, very educated, uh, uh, will learn very quickly about uh, what they're selling, which has got to be, again, uh, a promising because the more educated they are, the, the more engaged they are as buyers uh, and uh, probably uh, will drive more markets and be able to bring uh, more work onto the market. I think that's another way to look at it is it's just about quality. Um, and there are certain artists who have really passed the sniff test very well as being high quality artists. Um, and the best works by other artists will also pass muster. But a second tier work by a second tier artist um, isn't going to be exciting. So that brings up something really interesting about these sales um, that I want to ask you. These sales 
to a lot of people are frustrating because as the category becomes more selective, there's a lot of material in the sales that previously would have been maybe in a day sale or their works on paper or their other uh, works, you know, all around in the in the sales. Is that to fill out the sale? Is that because with fewer great things around, people are looking like, uh, I think it started with the Matisse drawing, one of the, the, the sales that that's just, you know, what's available uh, and uh, what you're selling? Or is it just needing to, you know, uh, uh, put more in a sale to make it seem like it's a well-populated sale? I, I Sometimes we would all select a little gem or two, a small work on paper that would have otherwise been a day sale piece to sort of start the first few lots or to pepper it in because she felt there would be, you know, a lot of attention, there would be bidding, and it would help the pace of the evening. So often the sales would get backloaded, you know, with uh, lesser works. And it's just, from my experience, the the pressures on the staff, you know, to get a certain amount of material in the sale to meet a certain projected plan for the estimate. And I actually think they did a really great job resisting. You know, we had so many sales at Sotheby's that were 70 lots that would have been great 50 lot sales. So that's that's a struggle, but it looks like, you know, both houses actually were showing a little more courage in sort of editing things and not necessarily taking too much in. But even those that are there is a function of just how hard it is to populate a sale with kind of consistent valued material. Well, and it also seems like there are works that need to be discovered um, as discoveries, just like a low estimate, that feeling of everyone finding a work. I'm, I'm thinking there was a Barbara Hepworth uh, sculpture that uh, was estimated at six to eight, six hundred to eight hundred thousand and sold for two million in um, Christie's Day Sale, uh, and it was so obviously a great work, but it's small, and it, I think it probably would have been hard to put that in an evening sale and get the same result. But in a day sale, the people who were going to find it found it and they obviously competed for it because it got a great price. I worked on the day sales for years and I'm a big believer in the day sales as an excellent forum to sell works that are appropriate for that sale. Um, and I think that you can achieve lots of outsized prices in that context uh, because it is the right forum attracting the appropriate clientele who just like in an evening sale are prepared to bid aggressively for things that they love. Um, I'm also a big fan of highly edited evening sales. Um, but I think there is also a time for um, highlighting special items um, outside of a particular price spectrum. So a good example of that would be Lot one of Sotheby's sale, a very nice, unique Archipenko um, that was appropriately valued at 100 to 150,000, but sold for 460,000 hammer um, because it's a rare, unique object. And so while that would have fit in a day sale, I think it also fits nicely in an evening sale. Um, and I think that ImpMod equally needs to. Um, harvest its markets and showcase um, special objects when the op 
opportunity arises, just like you would in a contemporary sale by putting um, a slightly a great example by a slightly lesser known artist in a contemporary evening sale. It's a great kickoff, and I think if I'm remembering this story right, this was something someone bought for like four hundred bucks <laughs> in like a small auction. I don't know what happens, you know, in terms of the legality. But, but it wasn't the only Archipenko. In fact, that was on my list of things to ask you guys. Um, uh, Christie's had one, uh, Hollywood Torso, that the high estimate was 700000 It sold for um, all in a million one four, so a significant amount uh, above. And I, I think there were two or three other works floating around. Uh, of Sotheby's the had a Blue Dancer. There were there were several. Sometimes you get a little bit of a run on things. <laughs> not not again, not by design, but by you know good fortune. That that large. Um, torso at Christie's, you know, the Hollywood torso, was just absolutely beautiful. I mean, I would have thought the the team would have, was very happy and very comfortable at five to seven and must have thought it was going to do better because works half the size of this subject, you know, would be nearly the mid-six figures. Well, and maybe that goes back to the other side of that question, which is, uh, uh, unfortunately, we tend to judge things by the past. And so if you put an Archipenko in an evening sale, there's the attitude of, oh, it's day sale material, when in fact there's a constituency for for it, it's a good work, and people just need to see and maybe have some respect for by, you know, witnessing this kind of bidding that the this is a, an artist, uh, at least, uh, you know, has significant works that rate that kind of attention. Do you what do you think is the future of this? You know, you started this by saying there's a supply problem. Is is it to come up with a different strategy of how to do these sales? I mean, we've already compressed what used to be a two-week cycle into one week. And that one week where now everyone's elbowing each other to get their sales in, in uh, on top of, uh, you know, the, the scheduling uh, and all, it, it almost asks the question whether there's another way to present maybe as smaller sales, maybe in some sort of different kind of uh, format. It does, does, do, do you see a time where this uh, uh, changes, or is it just waiting for the next big run where more stuff comes to market and you can persuade people to part with their good uh, paintings? All, all I can say is right from this, when I started in the late 80s, David Nash, they were all talking about, oh, we're going to run out of supply for Impressionist and Modern Art. How are we going to... Uh, face changing taste and drive crossover collecting. We had sales where we started putting the top Latin American works in the Impressionist and Modern sales. And what we found out was the collectors of the Latin American works preferred to see them you know, in their own sales. There was a period we were bringing Mary Cassatt into the Impressionist sales, the one that made it into Christie's sale and didn't make it, you know, to its next owner. But uh, Christie's tried the 19th and 20th sale division, and I don't know, I might lack vision, but I just know over 30 years this was, you know, there were two questions. What are we going to do, you know, about the diminishing supply and creating more crossover? And the other one was, how are we going to make more money yeah. outside the unpredictable cycles of, you know, auction houses? And that, that went all the way back to Sotheby's branded cigarettes and champagne to art advisory services now. So Credit cards. Yeah. I think Impressionists and Modern 
is a very successful category. And I would be more, um, I will watch the space of post-war and contemporary, which is such a large category, and the one that is constantly evolving. Um, and necessarily, categories must always continue to be shaped um, with the evolution of time. So I would think that that's the one that offers itself for reconsideration. But. Yeah, I'm not trying to put you out of a job, Brooke. I, 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 <laughs> but I actually think that's uh, the more interesting thing that I've heard is 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 to free up that category by changing some of the date, moving because we really are talking about modern sales with some impressionist works. Uh, you know, even there was a. Um, an Nymphaeus, uh, a stamped one uh, at Sotheby's that I thought was interesting that it was guaranteed. Uh, and it seemed to sell to the guarantor uh, or maybe on, on one bid. Uh, and that seemed like the kind of work that I'm sure there's a buyer for, but it just wasn't an exciting uh, uh, work. Whereas some of these other uh, pieces really did get people uh, excited because there was a shift in either bringing in other categories or moving uh, towards different types of works. And I could see easily bringing some of that work back into uh, a modern or a 20th century kind of category uh, that left the latter part, you know, the uh, basically the 80s forward into being a true contemporary uh, category. You know, I think that Monet, uh, the stamp Monet, was... That's an example of a private sale that just happened publicly or was just, you know, enacted publicly because it was just the guaranteed bidder against the reserve. And again, that sort of creates problems, the six problems in pricing, the success of getting somebody to lock in a bid and present it and sell it, but it doesn't necessarily mean the next one. Monet really didn't do anywhere near as well as people were expecting. You know, when being out now for some months in the private market, that's all anybody asks for. You know, do you have a Monet? Do you have a Monet? Particularly, you know, I would hear Monet in a two to five million dollar range. And, you know, that's exactly what there was in these sales. And yeah, four million seemed to be the, the number they, that came up again and again. Yeah, they really limped along. You know, I found it so interesting in that um, Henderson group, Brooke was mentioning, there was a, you know, a beautiful Giverny landscape that just got against the reserve hammer three and a half million versus four to six. And then right after it, and I absolutely love this work, and if it was me, it's the one I would have wanted too, but a, a little Gauguin, you know, made almost a million dollars more. Um, and I think maybe that also speaks to even of works of, you know, the same decade, 1880s, the ones with the denser color, you know, maybe moving toward a sort of greater sense of abstraction, um, maybe just be appealing to, you know, the do, younger do you eyes. Think that's, there's just a limit on the what people are willing to spend on these pictures, or it's that they're, the market is more private than it is uh, public, that once it gets to an auction, people sort of feel like, you know, it's not worth ch chasing. No, I mean, I don't know how Brooke feels. I, I don't, because it's the auctions up until now, I think, had shown such dramatic strength for, like, the last five years in Monet. You could have so many in a sale, and they would all continue to sell really well. But, 
you know, I don't know if one would say it's softening or maybe, you know, these successes lead to higher, incrementally higher estimates and then the audience starts to push back a little. You know, there's some regulating effect. There was that feeling yeah. to these sales, maybe a little more on the contemporary side than in the Impressionist and modern sales, but there was that feeling, I think the last time we saw this was around 2012, particularly in Impressionist and modern, there were sort of series of sales where everything, you know, increased in value from the, the financial crisis and the estimates just got to a point where there was essentially a buyer strike. Mm -hmm. and, and people just said, no, I'm not going to pay that. And then, you know, whoever was lucky enough to go first, uh, uh, unlucky enough to go first, uh, took it in the teeth. And then the, the next night, uh, you know, everything was, the reserves were lowered and the, the works were moved. Uh, and it was sort of a, 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 you know, a shot across the bow for uh, the consigners. This is, this is about as far as we're going to go. Right. And there's the individual pieces that you know, transcend sometimes our view of what the market is. You know, I just happened to be holding my catalog open on lot 29 at Christie's, that uh, 1925 Kandinsky. And Kandinsky oil on boards have not done well at all, uh, you know, from these periods. You can look and see an awful lot going unsold, but it just happened to be such a striking image. And I think, and I know lots of people say, it's just a very, also a very image-driven market when something just has a lot of energy and appeal, you know, whether it's a Bauhaus period, a Paris period, you know, that's less material than just a kind of visceral reaction. Which would go with a kind of mixing of categories that, right. you know, people are driven more by the images than necessarily by needing to tick boxes right. or fill in holes in, mm -hmm. in the way that they're collecting. I think this is a good place to, to stop. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Brooke. It was really good for you to join us. Thank you so much for having me this time. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com 